Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sexual behavior, abortion, and brief mentions of sexual assault. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, I chat with some authors and translators who examine sexuality and reproductive health in their work. Stories are a fundamental part of the human existence and have existed since we've had language. We form our cultures and belief systems around stories. Writers of fiction have the gift of being able to create entire worlds through the stories they tell. This is why I was honored to be invited to partner this year with the Fry Festival, Atlantic Canada's largest literary event. This episode is different than most Do We Know Things episodes where I dive into research on a specific sexuality topic. Instead of science, this episode focuses on art. I'll be interviewing three authors and translators who were speakers at the 2022 Fry Festival in Moncton, New Brunswick. They spoke on a panel called Feminism and Fiction. All of them deal with themes of sexuality and reproductive health in their work. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, I want to thank the Fry Festival for suggesting this partnership and suggesting this special episode for Do We Know Things. In some of the clips, you'll notice that I'm away from the mic, so my voice is a bit muffled. Fortunately, you can always hear my guests clearly. Here's the interview. Welcome to Do We Know Things. Can you please introduce yourselves and tell us about your work that landed you on a podcast about sexuality? I'm Sonia Malgoverza. I'm a writer and translator based in New Brunswick, most known recently as the translator towards French of Amy McKay's The Birth House. My name is Clementine Beauvais. I'm a writer, a translator, and also an academic at the University of York in the UK, Um, originally French. And I am on a podcast about sex because I write a lot about it in my various books, um, particularly young adult novels um, and occasionally an adult novel here and there. It's, It's a big theme in my work. Um, My name is Amy Wall. Um, I'm a writer and translator uh, based in Montreal, originally from Newfoundland. Um, And my first novel uh, is called We Jane, and it's about a, a group of women forming an underground abortion service in rural Newfoundland. What brought you to write We Jane? In writing about abortion, I knew that that was kind of where what my next project was going to address. And I was doing a lot of reading around it. I've always been interested in, um, particularly in the way people have like organized around reproductive justice, around fighting for it and around um, abortion access in particular. Um, and then I had discovered the story of uh, the Jane Collective, which was a group of women uh, in Chicago in the late 60s who um, began as a kind of referral service and then ended up providing abortions themselves um, and, and did this work for, you know, four years right up until the passing of Roe v. Wade, uh, providing abortions to, to thousands of people. And um, I was really struck by this story and that became kind of the, the main inspiration for me to to write a novel that like imagines a Jane uh, operating in the present day and in rural Newfoundland. 
Yeah, so the novel follows uh, a young woman who is originally from Newfoundland and has been living in Montreal um, and is a bit like at loose ends in her life uh, and kind of looking for something to, to do. And she meets an older woman um, also from Newfoundland who, who kind of tells her a story um, about Jane. Um, and they decide to go home together with the idea that Martha will will learn from these older women who've been providing abortions kind of on the sly um, and that she will sort of like, you know, they will pass the torch to her, that she will inherit the knowledge so that they can sort of at least keep it going. Um, and so the novel follows follows them home to Newfoundland and, and through the, the sort of beginning of this work together. Sonia, you translated The Birth House, which focuses on rural reproductive care. Can you tell us about how you came to working on this translation? Amy McKay's book came out in 2007 in paperback format in Canada. And that was the year I was pregnant and gave birth to my first child. And it was exactly at that moment that uh, that Amy's book landed into my life. And I immediately knew that it was something I wanted to lend my voice to. It's a, it's a very, I, I think maybe part of it was timing, but uh, it spoke to me deeply about uh, the importance of women's relationships and solidarity. It talks a lot about reproductive rights and, and just about the act of, of birthing a child, of bringing a, a child into the world or deciding not to bring a child into the world as well. Um, and I knew that Amy's book should be available to a larger readership than the one that was already available to it. Um, and I mean, as a translator, I thought that it was something that I could do. So uh, the book is, is actually the story of uh, uh, a woman's journey into becoming a midwife herself. Uh, she's taken under uh, the wing of uh, an, an elderly woman who's actually Acadian, whose mother tongue is French, which to me was a door into having this book exist in translation through me. For those who haven't read it, The Birth House is set in Scotts Bay, which is in rural Nova Scotia. After I moved to rural New Brunswick, I started reading fiction set in this area to get a better sense of the history and culture. The Birth House was one of the first books I read after moving to the rural Maritimes. And Clementine, can you share about your work on sexuality? Yes, well, my path is a little bit different because I started out and I still write a lot for teenagers. And of course, sex is a, is a big deal for teenagers. They're interested in it. I don't know if, you, if you've seen that. So it's it's a big part of young adult literature. And I started, um, I guess my first, my second teenage novel was already very much about sex in the, in the form of revenge porn. Uh, it was something that I was quite interested in at the time. It was in 2013. So you know, it was a moment where we started hearing a lot about it. Um, and it was um, about a high school where um, a young girl having dumped her boyfriend finds a video of herself um, everywhere on YouTube. Um, and then the next year or two years later, I published um, um, a book called Piglets in the English Version, uh, which is more about um, beauty pageants and and the kind of sexualization uh, or lack thereof of, of some um, young girls. Then later I wrote a romance in there that was much more about the happy aspects of sex. <laughs> um, but I wasn't interested at all in reproductive 
health or anything of that kind because I was writing for teenagers. Well, that said, there are books for teenagers about abortion, of course, because that's very important. But it wasn't really on my radar uh, until I myself became pregnant. And I think it is a, a, a thing. I, I agree. And, and my latest um, novel that, that does talk a lot about abortion and, and that kind of um, questioning, and which is for adults, um, was born itself, if I may be um, pardon the pun uh, of that um, of that experience. I believe probably it's called Decomposé. All of this, by the way, is in French. Some of my work is translated. Two of my novels, um, but most of it is in French. And what was the name about the first book about revenge porn? So my first book about uh, revenge porn was called Comme des Images, um, and uh, yeah, and the second is called Piglets. The third um, in Paris with you, translated by Sam Taylor. I then asked my guests a very do-we-know-things question. What did they learn about sex or reproductive health as part of research for their books or translations, or just by being a writer? Here's Amy, Sonia, and Clementine's answers. I did quite a lot of research, and, and part of it was I was looking for stories of abortions being performed outside of an institutional context and in times and places when it, it was not legal. And um, for obvious reasons, like there there aren't a lot of, of there's not a lot of documentation. Um, but what I did find was surprising to me on, on the level that, you know, we have this really indelible image in our head of like the back alley abortionist and the coat hanger and, and you know, these kind of awful images. And that certainly happened. Um, but there, there, there are other stories too. You know, there were, I read this book about a, a woman in Seattle in the early part of the 20th century who worked for years in a beautiful office with a sign on her door that said she was a chiropractor and she was very well known to the police. Uh, and she was a, trained doctor and this, and this was her abortion clinic. Um, and so what was interesting to me is that, not only were people providing abortions safely uh, and with care in these times, as well as, you know, with less care, uh, they were only policed in times when it was um, like politically expedient for the people doing the cracking down. I, I want to seem as if I'm coming down on this because that's going to endear me to the people that I want to keep me in power. And in times when this has been less of a hot button issue, they were just allowed to operate. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really interesting to me because I feel like we really don't have a lot of those stories. You know, I mean, I think uh, there are, you know, it's it's obvious why people wouldn't want us to know this. Um, but that was really interesting to me and, and really informative for me in, in trying to imagine, you know, uh, the, the story that I wanted to tell. So I don't, I don't know if you remember all of the details of the birth house, uh, having read it several years ago. Uh, but there's a passage, well, actually, Cole's notes here again. Um, sort of a, a very important uh, moment in, uh, or actually a, an important motor uh, in the story of the birth house is that a male doctor comes to the Canning, which is the village next to Scotts Bay or the town, shall we say. And he decides to open a maternity clinic. And it's sort of his way of modernizing um, the way of women having children brought into this world. 
One of the many things that Dr. Thomas brings with him is a portable electric vibrator, uh, which he uses or plans to use in order to uh, heal hysteric women. Dora, who's the narrator of the book, um, finds herself in his cabinet um, and undergoing a treatment for a supposed hy hysterical problem. Um, I needed as a translator to see what this apparatus looked like so that I could properly describe it and make sure that I wasn't, you know, putting words onto an object that didn't belong to it. And so that was one of the many things that I did research on as I was translating. And I fell into a rabbit hole, <laughs> I will admit to this, and know a lot about the history of the vibrator now. What I also have come to know is that there's a bit of um, misunderstanding uh, in the, that has sort of occurred in these past couple of years in that uh, we've come to think that the vibrator was invented specifically to be used on women to cure, and I'm using air quotes here, to cure uh, sexual problems, and that this cure was, uh, was given uh, at the hands of, of male doctors. But this isn't exactly the case. And I've actually, a friend of mine sent me um, uh, an article that was published last year in the New York Times. It was an op-ed by Hallie Lieberman, who wrote a book on the history of the vibrator, which I read in the process of translating this book. And she says, actually, that, as with many things, uh, the vibrator was actually invented not in order to cure a, a woman's sexual uh, supposed problems, but actually to uh, to address a man's health. And it was not actually invented in for sexual purposes. It was to be used as a shortcut for um, massaging male muscles. Mm -hmm. But then that was, you know, co-opted, and and perhaps surprisingly for us to hear now, it was not co-opted by men for women. It was our grandmothers who decided that it might be convenient to use. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting story to think that our grandmothers would have been, uh, you know, so naive, sexually speaking, that they would let themselves be cured um, at the hands of a man. Uh, but this isn't exactly what happened. And we also see that in the birth house, that uh, the, the vibrator is... Um, is ordered by Dora, our main character, and she uses it herself at home uh, in order to scratch an itch. Mm -hmm. Probably, you know, if you can allow me that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, so that that was something that I, I came to learn in the process of translating the birth house. It's, it's a wealth of information historically. Side note, if you want to learn more about the history of vibrators, you can listen to episode 29 of this podcast titled The Joy of Vibrators. I'll cheat slightly with your question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I found um, particularly interesting is the reception of, of those books by young um, readers, mm -hmm. those books and others, not just mine, and particularly the extremely great discrepancy that um, um, mediators of young adult literature, including authors, but also teachers and librarians, um, booksellers, etc., um, think <laughs> teenagers know and what they actually do know. Um and I really don't mean to glorify teenagers' knowledge of sex because I actually think it's much more nuanced than, than saying, oh, they know a lot of things and they're very mature. 
not necessarily, but certainly there is so much interest in sex in um, in young adults um, that they will be very paradoxical people who in the same sentence can say to you, well, of course, she shouldn't have sent that video and now, you know, serves her right that it's on the internet, but also are able to to talk to you very analytically and, and interestingly about um, the clitoris and and ways of achieving orgasm that clearly at their age, you know, in my generation, which is not that long ago, a little bit, <laughs> we wouldn't have thought about. So they're very informed on Instagram and, and, and TikTok and other platforms. And at the same time, have very moralistic and even sometimes puritanical <laughs> judgments about um, what sex is supposed to be like. And I think one of my most eye-opening moments of this incredible paradox was when a 12-year-old girl who had been very active in one of my school visits came up to me at the end and said, can I send you my manuscript that I'm writing? And I said, yes, of course, I normally do say yes when it's when it's teenagers. And she sent it to me a few days ago, and it, uh, a few days later, and it was... Um, a 250-page novel, which is quite unusual <laughs> for that age, absolutely full of the most, the strangest rape fantasies mm. set in a Holocaust setting with a Nazi, um, you know, camp, I don't know, like control or a guard or something like that, and a little Jewish boy. So this was 200 pages of incredible porn and, 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 you know, in rape fantasies around those two characters. And I was extremely taken aback by this because I looked at this and it was it was told as a, a sort of love story. And by the end, the little boy was in love with his um, persecutor and, and captor and rapist um, and then went away and they ended up being together forever you know, after. And it, it was baffling because I didn't really know what to do because as a writer, you know, I'm not their teacher. I'm not their parent. I don't have a duty of care to them, but I kind of do in the same way. So I contacted their teacher and said, you know, what, what do I do with this? Because actually I don't know if this little girl is being abused. I don't know, but how can she produce such work? And, um, you know, they approached her and talked to her. And then it emerged that in a way I had been quite naive to think that, that, that this was a, a problem because this little girl had been reading a lot of, you know, fan fiction of the kind that I used to read in a way, but not that, not this violent, and had assimilated its codes um, in ways that were utterly baffling to me, but that, you know, to her, it was extremely innocent. And I, I had to send her this long email saying, you know, this is rape, actually, what you're describing as love. This is, a, you know, a, a person um, keeping another one prisoner and making them endure the worst kinds of things. But to her, it was highly erotic. And this mismatch between the perceptions that we have of teenagers, the kind of easy opinions that we might have about their own opinions of sex and what the diversity of of their experiences and opinions is quite baffling. So that was a few years ago. And since then, you know, I've been seeing a lot more of that. Um, but it, that was very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, have you delved into the world more recently of fan fiction, like reading anything? That is I haven't really read any fan fiction in about 15 years mm -hmm. because I was, you know, I was an ardent reader of fan fiction when I was a... a a Harry Potter fan and, and, and teenager, but not since then, no. And I know that it's been, um, uh, you know, greatly enriched and 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 all of that. Um, wh what we used to think were steamy romance <laughs> fan fictions between I don't know, like Harry and Malfoy or whatever, <laughs> has gotten a lot more sulfurous now. Um, but no, I mean, I don't. 
to be honest, I really don't see it as my duty to go and read <laughs> fan fiction just for that. But now I know where she was getting her influences from and the kind of erotic imagination that was deployed from there. And it's it's interesting and disturbing that that all, so many, much of it might involve rape fantasies, even though I don't think this was a girl who would have been in contact with porn, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I think her um, her pornographic imagination was um, exclusively literary. I haven't read much fan fiction, but the students in my sexuality classes talk about it a lot. It seems to be an important sexual outlet and learning space for many young people. The title of your event at the Fry Festival was Feminism and Fiction. So my next question is a simple one. How did feminism inform your fiction and translation? I would say that I I don't sit down with the intent to write a feminist novel or write a feminist text, but if I'm moving through the world and, and considering things through a feminist lens, then it obviously filters through my work. Um, and these, and the kinds of questions I'm interested in asking or addressing and the kinds of stories that I, I want to tell, um, the kind of characters I want to put on the page. So, um, it's kind of an organic process rather than sitting down with the intention of, of a didactic or a feminist or an educational text. I've fairly recently come into public writing, which I would oppose to, you know, the secret writing that we, that a lot of us do in life. Um, and I find myself wanting to spend time describing marginal experiences and giving voice to um, the sort of shadow life of uh, the female experience. Uh, it's the experience that is mine. I feel that it's what I, I can and should write about. Um, and I also find myself writing about, for some, for various reasons, um, pulling in characters, uh, real life experience, uh, real life characters who are women who may have been forgotten by history or sort of overlooked. And perhaps that's where my fe- feminism comes in, um, is wanting to surround myself uh, with with women. And I do so as well in translation. At some point in my 20s, I decided that I would lend my voice exclusively to women writers. There have been some ex- exceptions to this general rule, but uh, I am more drawn towards lending my voice to a woman writer than I would be to uh, a male writer. And I think that's also where my feminism is expressed. That's very interesting because I almost have the opposite problem, so to speak, which is that I never get asked to translate men mm-hmm. <laughs> or very rarely. Actually, almost never. I've, I was only offered one male person to translate um, who was a poet um, and I did one translation of, of, a, of a male writer. I think it's interesting um, to think why that may be the case. And that's why I'm a bit... I'm a bit ambivalent about the term feminism being um, attributed to our writing and to a lot of people's writing just because they really mean women's writing in a lot of ways. And that leaves us with the duty and responsibility to do feminism. And that in a way, the fact that they keep asking us women to translate other women is like, you you do that because you'll probably do it well because you're a woman <laughs> and you get known with that kind of thing. And sometimes I, mean, I feel like I would quite like to translate men sometimes because who do these men get translated by? Maybe by the 25% of translators who are men. 
But we know that translation is 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 the work of, of women mostly. And it would be very interesting to see, do we actually ever get the opportunity to to give our words coming from a woman to men, which is which is interesting in itself. So yeah, I think there's a lot of um, of questions in in that in the in in that area. I completely sympathise with the notion that part of the work of a feminist translator is to give voice to to texts by women and and to texts that are that share our feminist values in a lot of ways. I would also interrogate the kind of editorial reflex to attribute female writers to female translators and male writers to male translators. I think perhaps uh, an inf- a contextual information that could be uh, important to know is that the reason in my 20s that I decided not to give my voice to males is because I've had some very, um, how shall we say, unpleasant experiences in my interactions around translating male voices. And it just got so complicated on a personal level that I didn't want to deal with that noise. I um, have also almost exclusively translated women writers. Um, in part, that is what, uh, like Clemencine said, I am also often offered um, books by women writers. And, and in some cases, they are books that I would have sought out myself. Um, but it, it is interesting because, as we've said, tr- translation is a is a very women dominated field um and sometimes i do think like well i would also like to work on the big historical book for like a change of pace or i would i'm i i am capable of of uh translating all kinds of things and not just other narratives of young women who kind of resemble me except that they wrote the book in french um <laughs> so you know like it, there is maybe room to broaden uh the field a little bit um but you know i i too also feel a, a sort of imperative too in that like the choice of text to translate the choice of text to make available to another audience can have a feminist dimension to it as well um so like kind of all of these factors come into play when i'm either like evaluating whether to accept a project or thinking about something that i would like to pitch that discussion led me to ask a question about translation Specifically, when it came to translating words related to sexuality, sexual or reproductive health, or even marginalized groups or communities, I was curious what components had to be factored in. I wonder, does the meaning change depending on who's doing the translation or the values that are held at the time of translation? Well, perhaps I can give you the example of the work that I'm translating right now. Um, You may know Chris Eaton. I'm translating symphony number three right now uh, into French. And um, there there are quite a few scenes in that book dealing with male sexuality, um, especially giving voice to and describing Camille Saint-Saëns homosexual relationships. And there are some sections that are quite graphic in nature. Um, they haven't been difficult to translate at all. Um, the the main difficulty that I find myself navigating with, and and this is, I think, this applies to sexuality as well as it would trend as it would apply to any other sphere of language use, is uh, is thinking about register and thinking about the fact that this translation is uh, as opposed to my translation of Amy's uh, Amy McKay's The Birth House uh, is is sort of meant to be addressing a larger francophone audience, not just Acadie, uh, but also um, I know that there's an idea of wanting to export the translation to 
readers from France, since Camille Saint-Saëns is uh, a French, com- or was, a French composer. Uh, and in that way, I need to be thinking about using language that isn't specific to regional um, regional use, but is more normative, uh, more international, shall we say. And it, it's it's quite difficult, uh, but also important work and challenging work and satisfactory work for me. Um, but it's, it's just gl- the translation experience globally has that difficulty of knowing that there are many possible ways of expressing something uh, that won't be understood everywhere. And it's constantly the work of navigating compromise, knowing that there will always be another way of saying it. And that's the beauty also of translation, isn't it? Is that my translation will not be yours, will not be someone else's. I mean, what, what, you're, what you were saying about the translation of Une Femme Lubrique, <laughs> which is indeed very polysemic, um, reminds me of Emily Wilson's gorgeous translation of The Odyssey that came out a few years ago with, I believe, Princeton University Press, but maybe I'm wrong with that. And in her translation, in the introduction to, to her translation, Emily Wilson talks about the fact that um, I think it's Helen, who is Helen of Troy, who is most often translated as bitch-faced Helen or something like that, coming from generations of translators who who translate a, a, something like a dog face, I don't know, I don't speak ancient Greek, um, into, into bitch, because mm. that's kind of what comes to mind. And also, I think the quite aggressive polysemy pleases male translators, and she you know, decided not to do that. Um, she's also very clear about her decision to translate um, what sometimes gets euphemistically translated as servants, as slaves, because these were enslaved women, most, mostly, and she, she talks about that very well. And I think the problem is a lot of times it's our translation reflexes. I'm currently retranslating uh, Jane Austen's Emma for a French publisher. And it's very interesting how you get... You have to resist kind of easy translations of some very specific little words. And I'm thinking specifically of words like giggled, for example, which if it's a woman who's, who, who giggles, you tend to translate it as pouffé or gloussé, which is sort of pejorative. When it's a man, you'll go more towards ricané or rigolé. But actually, there's no reason why you should do that. And you you maybe reflexively or implicitly mark some words as female or male in the French text, which may have been you know, fairly neutral in the English text and vice versa. It's not just going into French, of course. So you constantly have to make those kinds of micro decisions. In French, typically, you have to gender a lot of things. So it forces you to make decisions about things like, um, you know, is the doctor that, that's just walked into the room is that a, a man or a woman? Maybe in the English text you don't know because this is just a person who's going to say a few words and then go away. Mm. But in the French, you can't not know. So you have to make a decision. So then do you think I'm going to take the feminist route of making this doctor a woman? Okay, fine. But what if it's a gynecologist? Maybe it would be a little bit more interesting or feminist to make that person a man. Similarly, if it's a nurse, what do you do? Do you make this person a woman and reflect the fact the fact that most nurses are women? Or do you make them a man in order to, you know, challenge the view that, that nurses have to be women? And that that's something that you constantly ask mm-hmm. yourself. It's on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I'm thinking about... Um, uh, I mean, I'm working in the other direction when I'm translating into English and um, something I'm, I've am i like 
kind of gone looking for in, in other people's translations and that I'm quite aware of in my own is a question of register. Um, I, I've translated like several um, sort of like auto fictional novels by women. And, I, and I'm quite careful in that case because we're, this is a text that's very close to them. And I've noticed sometimes um, some writers who've written similar text uh, that have been translated by men, the, the male translator has, has softened some of the words that, that the, the woman has used to describe herself in her own text. Like I'm thinking of, um, well, an example might be somebody who was like a, a danseuse nu and, and the text, the, the translation is calling them a dancer and not a stripper. But I think, the implication in the original text is this person would have called themselves. They they would have owned this word that might have seemed har- that sounds harsher in English, um, because I think there's a stripping away of agency of on the part of the the right the writer's agency when when we soften their text. Um, but it's a, it's a really delicate balance, right? Um, especially when it comes to words that that have a harder edge or or to to my English ear sound harsher than they do in French. Um, so that's kind of like a, a constant challenge of of trying to strike just the right note um, with these kind of words that are a little bit more loaded. What are your thoughts about the role of fiction in education about or representation of sexuality and reproductive health in the general public? To me as a reader, as a translator and also as a writer, I feel that literature can be a safe space in in which to start thinking about things which are maybe not part of our reality. Um, The fact of having books now available to us in which the the actual procedure of what, a, what an abortion looks like um, can help demystify, uh, can help shed taboos as well. Yeah, And I, I think it's extremely important to broach difficult subjects in a written manner. Um, I think, I mean, to me, what I would say is I definitely don't see it as a responsibility that would have some kind of moral content or even educational. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is the way in which um, is, is the literary mission, mm-hmm. the, the literary uh, aspects of it. How do you tell the body? How do you write um, um Orgasm. How do you uh, encode that into into words? Um, and of course, the <laughs> literature is a good antidote to the kind of complacency or voyeurism that can arise from other media. Not to say that books can't be voyeuristic or complacent, of course, but when you pick up a book. Um, your own imagination does so much of the work that if something, if you're not quite ready for something to imprint on your mind, it it's not going to do anything else and suggest it to you. You can always put the book back on its shelf. This is especially important if you're a teenager. You can always fail to imagine some aspects if you're not ready. And those things can be very closely and delicately modulated through writing in a way that I don't think they can be uh, you know, as as delicately modulated on film, for example. Um, of course, I don't mean to, you know, to belittle cinema or whatever. There are lots of ways of making it elliptic, making it enticing, making your imagination work if you have a an audience. But but with a book, you can very clearly decide as a writer to 
to allude to things that only someone who knows will be able to extrapolate from while protecting some of the other readers from that. Um, and to only a book can only unfold itself when the reader is ready for some aspects. And I think all those degrees of, of nuance in ellipsis makes literature particularly interesting for the, for the literary treatment of sex. Not to mention that when you talk about sex in literature and you do it well and you do it aesthetically, it opens up new avenues for language itself. Mm. Um, because the body was, you know, historically has been, of course, encoded a little bit in poetry and all that. But it's only in the past, you know, 100 years, especially with the impulse of, of female writers and, and feminist writers, that we've been more aware, I think, of, of um all the ways in which um, bodily textures, fluids, um, feelings can be incorporated in the writing. And I don't think it's a secret or a mystery that terms like écriture féminine by, by Sixou and other writers have come into, um, you know, the general understanding that there might be something specific about feminine or female ways of saying the body. And we're still at the very beginning of exploring that. Uh, so that's what I find personally very exciting. This is the part of the show where I'd normally wrap up the episode with a neat conclusion, but I thought I'd let my guests have the last word. One last time, here are Clementine and Sonia. There's one point that I want to, in a way, reinforce, but which was mentioned, which was, I find it interesting in itself that we're all women here talking mm. about the way in which it gets written, um, because I think um, there's a kind of responsibility that is given to us and a kind of duty of, of writing about those things. Whereas if men were invited to talk about sex in their work, firstly, I'm sure their representations of sex would be much more uh, streamlined and, you know, basic, I want to say. And I read a lot of contemporary literature, at least in France, you know, men still write about sex mm. as they used to. It's kind of, it's the 25-year-old student is inexplicably infatuated with her teacher and I'm mm. going to have great sex at university somewhere. Um, that's basically what happens. And it, it's interesting that we have to take charge of that literarily and not just not just, quote unquote, in the bedroom and in our duty of educating children. It's mostly women who who educate the entire world about what's going on. Um, same thing on Instagram. I'm, I'm struck by the number of brilliant pages about, um, you know, about, about um, sex and about pleasure. Most of them are created by women and educate women and men. So, yeah, I think it speaks a lot about that. The fact that even in literature, it's the case. As a reader, I've found it really exciting to see that there have been a lot of non-binary writers stepping up. Just in the last five years, I would say, there's been a boon of really interesting and eye-opening writing about the non-binary experience. And again, I mean, this is women and non-binary people stepping up, um, but it's possibly also that much more important in the sense that historically speaking, if we're looking at literature with the, you know la littérature, um, the male voice has been heard quite a bit. So I, I, I'm really heartened by the fact that there are more and more spaces being opened up for other experiences of human sexuality. Thank you to Amy Wall, Clementine Beauvais, and Sonia Malaborza for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you to the Fry Festival for partnering with Do We Know Things, and I look forward to the 2023 edition of the Fry Festival next April. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. 
You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, and of course you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. DoWeKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>